Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think it was fairly clear to many in the Congress that we had to move forward, that we had an Article I responsibility under the Constitution to hold the president accountable for conduct that was so egregious. And, and obviously, several of our Republican colleagues ultimately agreed with that. That's Congressman Joe Neguse. He represents Colorado's 2nd District. Neguse made waves last month during his powerful presentation as a House impeachment manager during the second Senate trial of former President Donald Trump. Neguse joined Congress in 2018 and quickly became a member of House Democratic leadership. He's now co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, the DPCC, the caucus's messaging arm. He also just became the co-chair of the House Subcommittee on Public Lands, where he has gotten to work tackling the devastating wildfires that have ravaged Western states. Nagus and I talk about the impact of the January 6th insurrection and how he hopes to foster bipartisanship during these polarized times. We also talk about how he has been shaped by his own background as the child of Eritrean immigrants. And before we jump in, I have some exciting news. As many of you know, CAFE regularly hosts live events over Zoom. So if you missed the last one, don't fear. Our next live event will be March 11th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and it'll feature two brilliant historians, Professor Heather Cox Richardson of Boston College, who I should mention is a former guest of Stay Tuned, and Joanne Freeman of Yale University. To RSVP, head to cafe.com slash live. That's cafe.com slash live. My interview with Congressman Joe Neguse is coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Isaac in New York, who asks, Do you think Cy Vance will bring charges against Trump before he leaves office? How long do you think that investigation will take? Thanks for your question, Isaac. Uh, You're, of course, referring to Cy Vance, the sitting district attorney in Manhattan, who, as you know, has finally received the documents that had been objected to by Trump and his lawyers, the tax documents, the supporting documents related to tax returns, and all sorts of other financial information from Trump's accountants, Mazars. Now, I've tweeted about this a little bit and suggested that I think there is a likelihood of a charge, or at least that that office believes there's a likelihood of a charge, and that's been met with some skepticism. I'm usually the one if you've been listening for a number of years, you know, who throws cold water on the idea that there's going to be an immediate charge in a case, whether we were talking about the Mueller investigation or various other things, prosecutions are hard, investigations take time, and sometimes it's impossible to figure out in a way that's provable beyond a reasonable doubt what the intent of the target was. That's especially true when you're talking about someone who's at the top of a large organization and there are no recorded phone calls and there's no cooperating witnesses and there's no smoking gun. I will say in this case, however, I haven't been in the grand jury. I haven't seen the testimony of the witnesses. I don't know what further things Michael Cohen has had to say about his former client. I don't know if he's fixed some of his credibility problems, but the combination of the Manhattan district attorney getting the documents, 
hiring an outside lawyer of some eminence, Mark Pomerantz, who used to be in the Southern District of New York, retaining a forensic accounting firm, FTI, and doing all of that months before the election to replace him, and it looks like he's not running again, to me signals that they have an expectation, a fairly high expectation, that they will bring some sort of charge of some sort of seriousness. I don't think you go through all those steps, given how long they've been focusing on the case, on a lark. And I don't think you raise expectations in that way. And I could be totally wrong, but just my sense of the world and my sense of Psy and my sense of that office and the activity that has taken place, this is not based on any inside knowledge. My sense is they think the likelihood is, is high or at least substantial. And I also think, given the way that some people at the head of an office might think, it's been on his plate. He's been supervising the matter. If it can get done, he'd like to get it done before the election. And then he's leaving to his successor the prosecution, not just the decision to make the charge. That's my thought. This question comes from Serena in Illinois in an email who asks, what can be gleaned from the fact that the Manhattan DA has subpoenaed financial records relating to Steve Bannon's fraud scheme? Does that mean he'll end up bringing charges? And do local prosecutors in Manhattan have free reign to charge whatever they want if Trump's pardon only applied to federal crimes? Well, that's not one question. That's compound. <laughs> that's a compound question. You have a few in there, Serena, but thanks for them. So this is the second time I'm going to say that I am bullish on the idea that a particular prosecutor, in this case, once again, the Manhattan DA, Cy Vance, his office will bring a charge against Steve Bannon. I've been saying it for a number of weeks since Steve Bannon, uniquely among the four defendants charged in an SDNY fraud case, was pardoned, given a full pardon by then President Trump. The fact that the Manhattan DA is taking action, I think, very clearly signals that a charge may be forthcoming. The fraud that Steve Bannon and his co-defendants were charged with is kind of a garden variety misrepresentation. Remember, he had an organization called Build the Wall, solicited funds from across the country, making representations to people who were donating to build the wall, that none of the money would go into the pockets of the people running the organization. The allegation that the SDNY made was that Steve Bannon and others actually did line their pockets, notwithstanding their representation that they would not. They lied to people to induce them to give money. In most jurisdictions, if not all jurisdictions, if you can prove it, that's a fraud. New York penal law provides that a person is guilty of a scheme to defraud in the first degree when he or she, quote, engages in a scheme constituting a systematic ongoing course of conduct with intent to defraud 10 or more persons or to obtain property from 10 or more persons by false or fraudulent pretenses, representations, or promises, etc., etc. That's what was alleged in the SDNY case. I presume there are many more than 10 victims, some of whom will be in New York and in Manhattan. So I think there's a decent chance of a case. And in answer to your final question about the Manhattan prosecutors having free reign, that's absolutely correct. The Trump pardon applied only to the federal charges, and actually I think explicitly applied to those particular federal charges that the Southern District of New York brought. So Steve Bannon is clearly in legal jeopardy with respect to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. 
That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. My guest this week is Congressman Joe Neguse. He's a Colorado representative who helped make the case against former President Donald Trump during last month's Senate trial. Neguse and I talk about how he prepared for his role as a House impeachment manager, his relationship with lead manager Jamie Raskin, and how he strives for unity in a fractious Congress. Congressman Joe Neguse, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Preet. It's my pleasure. I want to I want to start with a semi-flattering question. Maybe it's fully flattering. So you've only been to Congress for a little while. You're younger than many people might appreciate. 36, am I correct? Uh, that's correct. And so you keep getting referred to as a rising star. <laughs> At some point, do you get tired of being called a rising star and want to have uh, risen? It's uh, <laughs> a fair question. Uh, you know, look, I, obviously, I've been very lucky um, and uh, very blessed over the course of the last several years to have this unique opportunity to serve our country and to serve my state and my community back in Colorado. And uh, it's it's been a real honor. I appreciate all of the you know kind words uh, that folks have uh, have relayed, uh, particularly in the last two months. But at the end of the day, like you, uh, Preet, it's for me, it's all about the work. So uh, I'm, I'm less focused on, you know, whether folks are calling me a rising star or whatnot, and more focused on the work we're doing. Well, that's a good answer, of course. So <laughs> obviously, we should spend some time talking, I want to talk about a lot of things with you, but we should spend some time talking about impeachment trial number two. Sure. But before we talk about that, let's talk about the event that led to that trial. Could you paint the scene for us of January 6th from your perspective and the perspective of your colleagues? What was that like? Sure. Um, so myself, uh, Jamie Raskin, who's a dear friend and a colleague of mine on the Judiciary Committee, and uh, we served together in House leadership my, during my freshman year, my freshman term in Congress. Um, him and I, uh, Chairman Schiff of the Intelligence Committee and Chairwoman Lofgren, who chairs the House Administration Committee, we all had been asked by Speaker Pelosi to help lead, essentially, the uh, Electoral College certification process on January 6th, which essentially shorthand for you know responding to what we knew to be very baseless objections that would be made by some of our colleagues that day and doing everything we could to you know uh, shepherd a, a very transparent and uh, solemn process that day to its ultimate conclusion, which was the certification of the results. So for the better part of the you know maybe a month, we had spent you know time on zooms and preparing for that moment, preparing for the day, uh, getting our arguments ready. And I offer that uh, more just as context for kind of my experiences that day, which is to say, on January 6th, we, I was on the House floor uh, with uh, Chairman Schiff, Chairwoman Lofgren, and Mr. Raskin, as well as other members, and was very focused on the arguments that we were making, you know, on, on my my speech and, you know, the rebuttals to some of the arguments that were being made by the other side. And I, I to be candid, was not fully aware of the events that were occurring around us, um, outside of the Capitol. Uh, you know, we, of course, you know, had seen uh, that there was 
uh, clearly a lot of people that day, you know, around the Capitol complex. But as we were on the House floor, it was not apparent to me, nor to my colleagues, just how dangerous the situation had become. Uh, I didn't really notice, you know, kind of how dangerous it had become until after I gave my remarks, uh, another Republican member began delivering his. And during his remarks, I saw Speaker Pelosi uh, escorted from the dais by her security detail, which, of course, you know, was a signal that something was amiss. And that was without without warning at all. There was no announcement. She was just no escorted off. No, just escorted off the floor. We were all, you know, sitting on the floor. As I said, I had just finished giving my argument. I think Representative Gosar was giving his argument, and it was in the middle of his that the speaker was escorted off, if I recall correctly. Um, and then a few minutes later, Steny Hoyer, who is the majority leader of the House, uh, who was sitting just uh, two rows behind me, uh, I noticed, as did my colleagues, that he was being escorted off the floor by his security detail. Um, and so again, at that point, you know, clear that something was amiss, but again, not clear what precisely was happening. There's no video on the House floor, um, you know, in the chamber. So look, this is this is going to be the subject of a lot of discussion and maybe the subject of a commission inquiry. And it's been the subject of some hearings already. But how is it the case that it came as such a surprise to members and to security at the Capitol when, among other things, one of the defenses, you know, ironically, uh, for the president's lawyers at the second trial was all of this was known and it was pre-planned and it was premeditated. And therefore, I don't agree with the argument. I know you don't agree with the argument, but the argument is, therefore, the president didn't incite it. It was already in the works. With that much information, what's the failure that caused so much surprise? You know, I I think that is going to be at least part of the inquiry that I suspect this commission, uh, the 9-11 Blue Ribbon style commission that the speaker has talked about and, and has proposed, We'll take up. I think there are a lot of questions that uh, the commission will have to to answer. I'm hopeful that you know they'll have uh, the necessary resources and subpoena power to be able to to answer the question you just posed, as well as many others. Uh, particularly given the fact that I don't, you know, given the testimony of the acting police chief uh, just last week, that there you know remains uh, a threat, right? I mean, that the, the situation is not yet fully resolved, and it's a very fluid situation in Washington as we speak. So. I think it's important for this commission to get up off the ground. But no, I, you, you ask a fair question. I mean, this is, that's obviously something that the commission's going to have to consider. Did you feel personal fear for your safety on 1-6? I did. Yeah, certainly. I, you know, I, I feared for the safety of uh, myself, my colleagues, um, you know, uh, the staff. I, I can't say enough good things about the Capitol Police that, uh, you know, put their lives on the line to protect us uh, and, you know, their, their courage, their patriotism. I, I'm just in awe of it. And uh, and I think it's important for us as a country to honor their service and what they did on January 6th. When on that day or the next day or the day after, did it become clear to you or was it communicated to you, we really need to think about impeaching Donald Trump a second time? Because that happened within a week. And, you know, I know it's a short article of impeachment, but it doesn't draft itself. What, what was the timeline of that? It became very clear, I'd say, certainly for me personally, by the next day, and I think for many members, it was clear you know, during the insurrection as it was happening. And you know, several of my colleagues, Representative Liu, uh, Representative Cicilline, who you know were ultimately uh, served with me as managers during the trial, uh, they were you know beginning to work on those articles, literally as they were. My understanding is as they were uh, you know locked up in their office during the insurrection. You know, I think. 
it's easy to forget now just how much of an exigent circumstance we were facing that day and in the days that followed. You literally had an insurrection to try to stop the peaceful transfer of power. President Biden had not yet been inaugurated. And there were many questions about whether or not that inauguration could ultimately occur peacefully just the following you know, two weeks from then or a little bit less than that. And so, yeah, I, I think it was fairly clear to many in the Congress that, uh, that we had to move forward, that we had an Article I responsibility under the Constitution to hold the president accountable for conduct that was so egregious. And, and obviously, several of our Republican colleagues ultimately agreed with that. And, and the fact that you had you know, several Republicans very early you know, on that evening, the next day, the day after, making clear that they concurred that in our assessment that what the president had done uh, was clearly impeachable. Uh, you know, that that obviously created an atmosphere in which there was support for impeachment that built. I want to ask you about the article. There's no reason you would remember this, but you and I met when Governor Christy Todd Whitman and I came to the Hill to talk about some of the reforms that we of were course, proposing I remember to it. Task Force. <laughs> I remember it vividly in, in Majority Leader Hoyer's office. Yeah, exactly. But so we had the meeting and then you pulled me aside and we had a brief conversation about, you know, what might be articles of impeachment the first time around. Those articles had not, my recollection is those articles had not yet been drawn up. And we had, a, you know, an offline discussion about whether or not it should be one article, multiple articles, whether the Mueller stuff should be in there too. And it was interesting because I think there was no consensus at that time. What was the thinking in this case? Why one article? Should there have been more than one article? Was that a mistake? How do you, how do you, how do you feel about it? And, and what was the thinking? You know, I, I'm not going to second guess. Of course, I remember that conversation uh, vividly. And uh, I think the president's breaking of constitutional norms early in his tenure was, of course, a harbinger of more things to come, which culminated in you know, the breaking of perhaps the most fundamental constitutional norm that has governed our republic since its founding, which is the peaceful transfer of power that we've had since the days of George Washington. And so you could see the writing on the wall that this, this would be the inevitable conclusion uh, to his conduct, uh, you know, over the course of his time in office. And so uh, that conversation with you does certainly stand out in my mind. Uh, look, with respect to the article that we ultimately uh, drafted and, and uh, that the House approved and that we prosecuted in the United States Senate, I'm not going to second guess the decisions that were made at that time by, uh, you know, the, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in consultation with many others. Uh, I think that it was fairly clear to all of us that what had happened on January 6th was an insurrection and that his dereliction of duty, uh, which even the leader of the, the minority leader of the Senate called disgraceful, was part and parcel to that insurrection and, and went to proving his intent with respect to you know, uh, his actions that day. And so I, I thought the article was broad enough to encompass all of that conduct as we you know, tried during the impeachment trial. But you know, look, people, reasonable questions about whether there should have been additional articles. Uh, obviously, as you know, uh, that uh, that discussion, that process was uh, more abbreviated, uh, you know, than than is well, than has been. <laughs> you were exactly. On. I mean, when you're when you're facing an exigent circumstance like that, where you're unsure whether the president is ultimately going to uh, accede to the peaceful transfer of power in ten days. But there could have been. Do you agree that there could have been one article, or the only article could have been styled? And you just said the phrase could have been styled as a dereliction of duty. Would that have been an appropriate? Article. Yes, I think that you could have you could have done a standalone article. I think that that conduct was encompassed within the article that was approved by the House. But yes, I th and there are other articles, by the way. I think that you could have proceeded with uh, during the you know the course of this second impeachment. But I think the focus was really on that first article because it's what we all lived through and experienced ourselves. 
can you explain how one becomes a house manager in an impeachment trial? Do you, do you audition for it? Do you send in a tape? No. Uh, do you <laughs> no. give references? Does the speaker just sort of look at the list and see who she wants? How does that work? Yeah, so far from it, I, I, you know, I can't speak to the speaker's uh, process. Uh, I will simply say that I found out the same way that uh, others did, which was I received a phone call from the speaker informing me that, uh, that, that she'd like me to serve in that capacity. And uh, I told her that I'd be honored to do that and to serve my country in, in that way and called my wife and told her that, uh, you know, we, that I had accepted, uh, you know, her request for me to do so. So, yeah. And I, look, I, I think uh, as you review, you know, obviously I have great respect for all of my colleagues in the house, but I, I have to say the team that she assembled for purposes of both the first impeachment trial and the second impeachment trial, uh, were just stellar. And I can't say enough good things about my colleagues, people like Madeline Dean and Jamie Raskin, and many of whom are close personal friends of mine, um, and all of whom brought something very unique and different to the table. As you know, I mean, being a, you know, such an accomplished prosecutor yourself and, and building trial teams, uh, you know, everybody brings something different to the table. And, and that, that, you know, sort of eclectic nature of, of a team is what makes it so compelling and powerful. And I thought that was the case in this instance. So who, who divides up the work? Does, does someone, does... Lead manager Raskin. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so a lead uh, manager Raskin, who, you know, as I mentioned, had really, you know, was helping and arguably was the leader of the process on January 6th in terms of the Electoral College certification. And I thought the, the speaker did a, a masterful job selecting him as the leader of the uh, impeachment manager team. And, and he, so he was uh, responsible for deciding, uh, you know, in consultation, obviously, with the leadership and with uh, the team itself, the various, you know, labor of work and so forth. So I'm going to say my second flattering thing now. Um, Am I correct that you don't have really substantial trial experience? No. So I, you know, I tried and certainly not as substantial as yours, Preet. Uh, And obviously I'm I'm fairly young, uh, not as young as I used to be, but, uh, but no, I, you know, I've tried cases in in the commercial context. So, you know, private litigation, I practiced law for several years, but no, I have not, you know, tried. How many cases you probably tried thousands of cases? Not that many, but I oversaw a lot, (laughs) but you couldn't, you couldn't tell. I mean, the, the reaction to you was really something. And you seemed like you had been doing it for hundreds of years when you were in the well of the, of the chamber um, and I wonder what what prepared you most for that experience. Well, that's very kind, uh, uh, particularly since I was so nervous uh, during the trial. So I'm glad to hear that uh, you didn't you didn't feel that way. But uh, you know, were, look, you, ner- were I, you nervous? It's good for you to tell people that. Oh, sure. How do you hide course. your nerves? Uh, I mean, you know, you're standing in the well of the United States Senate, uh, the world's greatest deliberative body, and like you, as you know, my family's journey is. Uh, uh, my family's story, rather, to this country is an immigrant story. And and so, you know, as a son of refugees, to to stand in that hallowed chamber and to have the eyes of the world on you and to have the, his- the weight of history on you as you're, you know, doing what you can to defend the Constitution. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that you'd uh, uh, you'd do a good job if you weren't nervous. So I think we all were a little bit nervous. Um, you know, the way that I tried to center myself and, and, uh, and, and stay, you know, kind of f- focused was uh, having a routine every evening. And, and of course, this is my you know, routine regardless, but um, FaceTiming with my daughter and my wife, uh, you know, back home and and uh, trying to kind of, you know, remember why I was there and trying not to, in some respects, run away from the stakes, right? I mean, the, the stakes of this trial, in my view, were very high. It was important for us to establish this record and and to send, again, a message to the country and the rest of the world that, you know, that, that our republic would endure. And so, I think embracing that and uh, recognizing that you're there for a reason and, and you have a job to do. Uh, anyway, that was sort of the approach that I took. But yes, certainly very nervous, as was, I think, every member of the team. 
Did the president's lawyers make any arguments that surprised you or that you didn't anticipate? No, you know, I, I think I was surprised by the bombast, um, but I suppose <laughs> I, I suppose I shouldn't have been. And so I, I think that was, you know, again, I, maybe a bit, bit naive to think that that would not, you know, that you're in the United States Senate, you know, you're, you're and so this idea of, of, of yelling and, you know, kind of the, the aggressiveness that to me was a bit surprising. Beyond that, I don't know there's anything that they said that we were particularly uh, surprised by. We had anticipated, you know, the arguments that they would make regarding the First Amendment and the constitutionality of the trial in terms of the jurisdictional arguments, which obviously we had dispatched, uh, you know, on the first day of the, the trial. So no, I was not generally surprised. Do you persist in the view that once the Senate had dispensed with the idea of the constitutionality being challenged, in other words, you can't have a, a Senate impeachment trial for a president who's no longer in office, even if that impeachment occurred while he was in office, that once that was dealt with in a vote by the Senate, that it was an inappropriate basis on which to uh, vote nay or to vote not guilty for a senator? Yes, I do. I mean, I get that. And, and I tend to agree in principle. But isn't it the case that senators can vote in that context on really any basis that they want. And there are no real jury instructions like you would have in a normal trial. So, so why can't they still vote on that procedural point? I think that, you know, we obviously, a Senate impeachment trial is different than a conventional criminal trial or civil trial. That being said, clearly the framers had intended for it to function not as a purely political process, right? It's why the senators take a separate and different oath as jurors at the commencement of the trial. And so I look at it from the, uh, as a former private litigator, right? the idea, the notion that you could file a you know, 12B6 motion uh, at the beginning of the trial and then have that motion be dismissed and then nonetheless have a jury dismissed on the same basis for which you had made that motion. I, I mean, what was the point of proceeding point of the with motion. the jurisdictional <laughs> motion to begin with, right? And and I also will say it's interesting because it, it it is relevant to some of the discussions that are happening today around Senate procedure, right, and archaic rules in the Senate. The Senate has always been a body that largely purports to rely heavily on precedent, far more than the House. And of course, we see that, for example, in the discussions around the parliamentarians' view with respect to the reconciliation bill that's making its way through Congress now. For a body that purports to rely so heavily on precedent, I was obviously disappointed that they would disregard not just their own precedent in the Belknap case, which of course we argued at great length, uh, perhaps more than folks would want it to hear. But I enjoyed also, it. <laughs> oh, I appreciate I'm glad you did. Uh, but also their own precedent in terms of the law of the case, right? I mean, if we made compelling enough arguments that we convinced multiple Republican senators to vote to ultimately hear the case on the merits, and the notion that senators wouldn't be bound by that ruling, if you take that to its logical conclusion, it would mean that you know rulings on evidence, uh, any other procedural motions that are made during the course of the trial, could all serve as the basis for a, uh, for a dismissal at the end of the road. When you were speaking, particularly at the end of the trial, to whom were you addressing yourself? All the senators, the Republican senators, the public, Mitch McConnell, some combination. I mean, you, you chose your words very carefully and it was noticed how you were crafting your arguments and the phraseology you were using. Who, who was your audience? I would say all of the above. Um, but really, who was your audience? <laughs> I'm going to have to let the listener decode that, I think. Um, obviously, the language I, I, I used, as you can tell, was very strategic and specific. And clearly, I had hoped, I, I believed, as did the managers, we really, truly believed that we could get 67 votes 
that the strength of the evidence, the strength of our arguments could overcome the you know, political morass and, and gridlock that is too often gripped Washington and that they would ultimately do the right thing. And so, as you can tell, the speech that I gave on the final day of the trial was not one that someone would give if they believed that, uh, that the verdict was already in. And so, no, I, I clearly, the Senate minority leader, uh, I, you know, I, I referenced, uh, there were various references in the speech that I, I thought would speak to him and, there were, and that also would speak to the country and would speak to his colleagues in the Senate. Stay tuned. We'll be back with Congressman Joe Neguse after this. So looking to the future, you already mentioned in a more optimistic tone that I uh, expected the possibility of this 9-11 style type commission. Does that really have a shot? I'm hearing a lot of debate over the makeup of that commission, the scope of what they would be looking at. You know, on 9-11, the, the country was pretty unified in the wake of 9-11 at least. And it wasn't seen, you know, as an inquiry about necessarily the bad conduct of a sitting president. Whereas this would be, what, what is your sense of optimism about whether or not such a commission can actually be established? It's a good question, Preet. And I think it's an open question. I, my honest answer is I, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, I think that it's important for us to move forward and to have a commission. I think what Speaker Pelosi has outlined makes a whole lot of sense and, and is the prudent step forward. You've heard opposition from some Republicans on that basis. Obviously, there's going to be some pretty, I think, robust debates in the next two, three weeks about the contours of what this commission should and could look like. At the end of the day, my hope is we could resolve those differences and, and, and just get it done, because I think the country needs it. And we need to have a commission that actually can you know, look at this in a bipartisan way. But beyond that, I mean, look, the, the committees of jurisdiction, the Homeland Security Committee, the Judiciary Committee, Intel, um, House Administration, in both chambers, I should say, I think are also going to do their own investigations. You see that already with uh, the investigation that Senator Klobuchar, uh, as chairwoman of the House, uh, they have a different name for it in the, in the Senate, but the, their their uh, iteration of the House Administration Committee, her and Roy Blunt, a uh, Republican from Missouri, that they've already begun, right, with some of the hearings that they right. held. And so in the meantime, we'll continue, I think, on that course. But I, I don't think that that can be a replacement. It's not mutually exclusive of the need for a truly bipartisan 9-11 style commission. So if you, when you say truly bipartisan, do you, are you in agreement with the people who say there should be an equal number of Republicans and Democrats? I, I support the plan that the speaker has outlined, which um, does not, I, I don't believe, uh, has an equal amount. That being said, I, again, I think that's probably part of the negotiations that will happen in the next few weeks as they you know, kind of further refine the scope of the commission, the timeline, and how it's structured. And, I, and I'll leave those details to be negotiated by leadership. I trust their judgment. So more about the future of, of the Congress, of the country, and bipartisanship in particular. What is, what is it like post-insurrection and post-trial? What's the feeling in the House when you're in the halls, when you grab a bite to eat, when you're in committee? Does it feel different? I think that the feelings are still fairly raw. What we all experienced, what the country experienced on January 6th, uh, was uh, something that you know we certainly have never experienced before. And so it's only natural that it would take time, I think, for folks to be able to you know kind of rebuild you know partnerships uh, that maybe had previously existed. Uh, that being said, I must tell you, and I, I also would just say and, and caution your listeners on this point because I, I have many Republican friends in Congress. 
that I work with and partner with. We just launched a uh, bipartisan wildfire caucus last week with uh, Representative Curtis of Utah, who's a, who's a friend and a colleague. And we have vigorous debates. We disagree on a whole lot, but you know we're also moving ahead with you know addressing wildfires in Colorado and Utah, which is a big issue out here in the West, as you might imagine. And I see those bipartisan efforts and endeavors still coming to fruition, still happening on a daily basis. It, again, it doesn't mean that it's not different than what it was before. I do think there's a different atmosphere in Congress right now. Um, and that's just, again, only natural given what the country just experienced. But yeah, I, I haven't given up on the, on the hope that, you know, we can kind of, we can come together on issues that matter. And I, that, that's certainly my experience. Maybe this is a silly question. How do you go about, explain to folks how you go about becoming friends with people in Congress on the other side? Do you pick up the phone, you say, hey, you know, you have a common interest in fighting wildfires or something else. Let's get breakfast. Let's get a get a beer. Does it happen through committee work, through the staffs? I, I think it's very confusing to people who've never been in the Congress or worked in the Congress, how that happens. It runs the gamut, um, it, all of the above to what you just described. It's, you know, largely from your committees, right? You, you get to know the members of Congress who you serve with on your committees the best, right? Because you spend the, the, the most amount of time with them during committee hearings, markups. And so, you know, you may, during the course of a committee hearing, you know, you hear something that a colleague has said on the other side of the aisle that makes sense and is reasonable and, and think, boy, that this, this individual has a similar interest to one that I share and perhaps we could partner together on this particular issue. And so that's certainly been the case. Uh, you know, you meet members who have, uh, for example, uh, this is pre-COVID, but uh, pick up basketball games in the house gym, uh, you know, that uh, are fairly regular. And, and so you meet different members playing in those pickup games and, and then from there, you know, build partnerships, you know, that inert to the benefit of your constituents. So, yeah, it's, there's no real one central way. It's, it's, it's largely, it's the same way I suspect that folks develop uh, partnerships in their workplaces, right, as they build out teams uh, based on common sets of interests and values and so forth. You have been referred to in various articles, and I don't know how this hits your ear, as very likable, as a nice guy, has a good smile, and you come across that way. And it, it has occurred to me, I don't know if it's my imagination or not, and I'm a little older than you are, a bunch older than you are, that it used to be the case that that kind of uh, you know, approach or aura or temperament was much more common in the past and seen as much more valuable, whereas now... You know, Donald Trump was not a particularly likable person. Bill Clinton was, putting aside their politics. What's, what, am I right about, about my observation that likability has faded as an important quality for politicians and, and the way that people get ahead in the House is by being you know, rough and tumble and obnoxious and high decibel? Honestly, my sense is that that's not the case. Um, at least that's been my experience so far in the House. Obviously, I've only been there for a few years. But my experience has been that most people in Congress are nice people. They have a servant's heart. They're in it for the right reasons. Name it's some a, of the people who aren't. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you do that part maybe after the program. I, I, don't, I think those, uh, it wouldn't take me long to identify those folks. I, look, I, I'm just, I'm being honest. I mean, I really... That that has been my experience. I don't. Can, can I separate it out? So so sure. In my experience, and I worked in the Senate for for a number of years, and I've had contact with a lot of people who are in elective office. There are some people who are what you see, and behind closed doors, they're a particular way. And when they get in front of the podium, they're the same way. Obviously, they're a little bit more prepared in front of the podium. And there are other people 
who are you know, combative and obnoxious and mean-spirited behind the podium, but behind closed doors, they are, as you say, likable folks. I guess by definition, it's, it's hard to get elected in your community if you are a jerk and come across as a jerk. Is it fair to say people are, are not the same behind closed doors? And would it be better if people brought some of that pleasant, good face, good, you know, good-natured manner to their public lives? I think what you're describing and, and sort of the, the performative art of, yes. <laughs> of our modern politics is, I actually think that's largely more a symptom of a more structural disease that, you know, permeates our body politic, which is the gerrymandering and, and the need for deep redistricting reform. I think that, look, at the end of the day, you know, most members are, and I'm not saying this, I'm talking about in the aggregate, obviously there are exceptions, but most members are being responsive to their districts and to the to you know to the passions and and the beliefs and the values of the people that they represent and if you you know have a system in which you draw uh, you know some of these districts in in such a way that they are overwhelmingly one lean or another obviously that's going to create a different set of incentives and that's that's unique that is new that's a that's a new phenomenon i say new i mean relatively new in the last you know 20 30 35, maybe 40 years, right? But there was a time when uh, the ideological sorting of the parties was far different and when the district uh, composition was far different. And so you, you just didn't have that incentive structure. That's what's changed. But fundamentally, my experience has been that the vast majority of people in Congress are trying, you know, are nice people who, you know, are, are in it for the right reasons and trying to do the right thing. Can we talk about some policy issues? Sure. You mentioned this already once, the $15 minimum wage. At dinner last night, and maybe you'll make fun of the nature of conversations over my dinner table, but my daughter, <laughs> who is a college student, but doing her college work from her uh, bedroom in her parents' house because of the pandemic, she, she said, Daddy, why can't the Congress just ignore the parliamentarian and go ahead and stick the $15 minimum wage provision onto that thing called reconciliation? Why does a parliamentarian have to be obeyed no matter what, given how important it is. And I couldn't give her a particularly excellent answer. Can you? Well, I mean, you worked in the Senate, Preet, so if you can't give a particularly compelling <laughs> answer, I'm not sure what a two-term House member is going to be able to offer. Well, I started saying things about precedent and uh, that you referred to, and that the Senate doesn't work if you start, you know, trampling all norms and that what goes around comes around. I, but, you know, I don't mean to misrepresent her position and she doesn't like it really when I talk about her on the podcast, so don't tell her that I, that I did. <laughs> but I, I think there's a feeling, particularly among young people, that you know what? There's so much trampling of norms that if there's a good thing that you can accomplish, why rest on that you know, kind of sort of quaint uh, idea when all it does is screw good things from getting done? I, I guess I would say uh, I get it. I hear her. And I empathize with her position and, and could understand her frustrations. Um, and I, I think this is, it's the crux of a debate that is happening, I think, within the Democratic Party. And, and frankly, I think across both parties, right, about how, what do you do when this game of constitutional hardball, uh, you know, kind of it, it continues in a way that it becomes this race to the bottom. And, you know, I, there, there's a legitimate question about that particular issue with respect to the parliamentarian's uh, advisory opinion, right, that you couldn't include the minimum wage in the reconciliation bill. And, and I'll let the senators on both sides of that debate, you know, kind of uh, discuss that at greater length with you. I guess I just would say to you that I think it's complicated. I think it's complex. I, I don't, I don't, 
think there's a simple answer to that question. Uh, I think that question, in, in some respects, the the larger it, it obfuscates from the larger question looming, and that has been looming for quite some time, which is the filibuster, right? Which is a variant of the same issue, right? The, the historical abuses of the filibuster in the last. 30, 40, 50 years. So the, the, the fact that cloture votes are something entirely different today than they were, you know, historically. And of course, we can go into a long debate about the history of the filibuster going all the way back to, uh, you know, the, the 18th century and whether or not this is something that, you know, that is even consistent with the way in which the Senate is supposed to function under our Constitution. But all a long-winded way of saying, uh, it's a tough question. And uh, Do you, you have know, a view on, this, on the filibuster or are you going to leave that to the senators too? I... I <laughs> Which, I look, think, is, is a pretty good strategy, but I'm trying to get, I'm, this is a podcast and you're under oath. <laughs> Listen, I had the opportunity to, to travel to Georgia, um, to Atlanta, to participate in the memorial, the funeral for John Lewis, who was, you know, just a giant among giants and someone who I was so honored to serve with the United States Congress and who paved the way for, you know, people like you and me and so many others to, uh, to be able to, to pursue our dreams. And I, I must tell you, I you know I so I was there listening to President Obama deliver his eulogy, which was so powerful. And I thought the argument that he made about uh, Voting Rights Act, um, which of course is now aptly named the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, the the ability for us to ensure that that progress is maintained and secured, uh, you know, should not be subject to a relic of you know of a, a long forgotten time uh, of a tool that was used to try to prevent progress before. And so I. That argument appeals to me. I guess I would just simply say it that way. So you speak about voting. So let's talk about that for a minute. There's a bill, HR1, which is dedicated to election security and even more importantly, perhaps expanding voting. Among other provisions, it calls for automatic voter registration, online voter registration, same-day voter registration, making election day a federal holiday. All these ways that would increase participation beyond even what we got in the last election, which was pretty high. A- what are the prospects for that kind of thing, given how the last election turned out? And B, what do you make of what's happening on the other end of the spectrum, which is efforts in various states on the local level, Georgia and elsewhere, where Republicans lost their efforts to sort of constrict voting? How are those two, two different sort of missiles going to resolve and clash? Yeah, clearly those you know, sort of two schools of thought, right, on a collision course. Uh, I know you live in New York, uh, so I, I will say that... Uh, Colorado, obviously, I'm biased, but you know, I think the best state in the country, and one of the reasons, in addition to our incredible public lands, is uh, not that I'm, you know, doing a, a sell here on Colorado, I guess, but it sounds like <laughs> on your podcast. But, uh, but you know, one of the reasons is Colorado has the gold standard for election system in the country. So that we had the second highest voter participation rate in the United States, uh, second to only Minnesota uh, in 2018 when I ran for Congress. The first time, our congressional district had the highest voter participation rate in the country. And I you know, like to say that it's because of the candidate on the ballot, but the truth is it's, <laughs> it's not, right? I mean, it's because we have laws in the books, automatic voter registration, uh, all-mail ballot system so that you know, ultimately folks can vote from the convenience of their home. Uh, we have same-day registration. We have online voter registration. Uh, we've got pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, like your children, right, who can pre-register so that they're automatically- You offered uh, an amendment to that effect, did you not? That's that's precisely right, yeah, which uh, was accepted and, and we'll vote on uh, tomorrow, actually, in the House. So look, I, what HR1 is largely doing is emulating the systems that we have in place here in Colorado at the national federal level, because we know that not all states uh, have uh, taken the same approach that we have in Colorado, which, by the way, 
has been bipartisan. I mean, we have Republican county clerks, Democratic county clerks, election officials, all of whom do a great job you know, administering the laws that we have on the books in a way that ensures that there is uh, integrity of our elections, right? And that those who are legally eligible to vote can do so in an easy and accessible way. So I, I'm excited about HR1. And obviously, as I said, in part because it's, it is modeled after the laws we've adopted here in Colorado. And I think you have to pursue these reforms at the federal level. If we don't, clearly writing is on the wall with respect to what's going to happen in some of these other states. The voter suppression efforts are alive and well. And I think if the federal government does not take this step, particularly in light of the way in which the VRA, as you know, being an accomplished litigator, uh, uh, you know, has been gutted by the Supreme Court and, you know, the, the realities uh, that that's not, it's not functioning in the way that it used to. I think this is an important step. So in terms of realistic prognosis as to, you know, its passage, I think it's going to pass the House this week. And then, you know, again, we'll have to see what happens in the Senate. But my sense is that it ha- will have strong support within the House Democratic Caucus. It'll be up to uh, Senate leadership as to how best to handle their floor, you know, managing their floor time in terms of the bill. I, I should note for listeners that we're recording this on Monday, March 1st. And so maybe it will have passed by the time people hear it on Thursday. Can we talk about climate and the environment for a moment? There's a lot of disconnect between sides on the environment. And you signed up to the Green New Deal. Many aspects of that, you know, are not, you know, soon to be passed into law. If you had to pick one or two things on which you think you could find bipartisan consensus to advance a good and progressive and protective environmental agenda, what would those be? And and how should people go about getting to that consensus? I, I think there would be two pillars. The first, technology. The second, jobs. With respect to the first... Uh, look, uh, there's bipartisan support in the Congress for investment on the R&D side. We have incredible federal labs. My district is home to 13 of them, literally some of the most cutting-edge labs in the country, NREL, uh, UCAR, NCAR, doing incredible, phenomenal work as far as battery storage technology, right, and, and trying to develop different ways to, to further harness the benefits of renewable energy. And so I, I think doubling down, scaling up those investments, particularly when countries like China are doing the same, I think is an argument that, you know, can be made on both sides of the aisle. And I think you, that's been borne out in terms of some of the, for example, some, a bill that we passed at the end of the last Congress uh, that included some components of this. So that would be one. I, th- I think that that would be a, a first pillar. Second pillar, when I say jobs, I'll just give you a very concrete example. Here out West, last year, two of the three largest wildfires in Colorado's 136-year history happened in the last seven months. And both of those fires were in my congressional district in Grand County and in Larimer County. Some of your listeners may have uh, visited Fort Collins, Estes Park, or Grand Lake communities that are incredible uh, that were hit hard by these fires. There's a real need for a 21st century civil conservation corps, a new generation of young people to go work in doing trail restoration, reforestation projects, uh, wildfire mitigation and adaptation. And it's a program that worked, as we know, you know, going back to the 1930s, when FDR first uh, imagined the Civil Conservation Corps, some of the most, uh, uh, you know, the incredible places in our country uh, were, uh, uh, you know, were a byproduct of the work done by the Triple C. I'll give you an example. I don't know if you're a music fan, but, uh, you know, if you've ever been to Red Rocks, which is one of the best music venues in the country, again, in my district. I know it, I've never been, but I know it well. Well, you'll have to come out. And when you do, you'll be able to see the signage from the Civil Conservation Corps, literally 90 years ago, the people who worked on that project. So I think investing in that type of program, which President Biden has already announced, at least in part as part of his Build Back Better program, makes a whole lot of sense. And I think we can get 
some votes on the other side of the aisle. Not all. Look, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a realist and I'm a pragmatist and recognize not everybody's going to agree, but I think we can get some votes. Do you think when bills pass on a complete and strict party line vote that that robs those laws of some legitimacy? I mean, does it bother you? No. I mean, I don't think it robs the, the vote itself of legitimacy. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the House uh, is a majority you know, rule institution, right? In the, in the sense that obviously the majority uh, holds the, governs the floor. And so I, I don't, I would hope that my Republican colleagues would join in supporting, for example, the COVID relief bill, since the vast majority of the American public supports it. But Right. Well, what's interesting about that is, so I've seen, and I think this is smart, I was going to say clever, but clever is often a mild insult. <laughs> there's, been a, there's been a change in the rhetoric around what it means to be bipartisan, and you just alluded to it. And that is, even if there are no Republican votes in the Senate, or in the House on a particular provision, polls that say, you know, 70 or 75% of the public support a particular thing, like the $15 minimum wage, that's by definition bipartisan because the people on both sides of the aisle, whether they're in the Senate or not, uh, you know, support it. And so that's the basis on which you make the argument. Can you explain to the public what I still don't understand? even though I was a political science major and I've studied the law and comment on all this stuff for years, how it can be that something that has really wide, broad political support and popular support in the country just gets crushed when it comes to Congress, like the minimum wage, for example. I mean, we're a democracy. How, how does that, you know, if it's a free market of ideas and voting, how does that happen again and again? It's a great question. Well, let me just say first, with respect to kind of how do we define bipartisanship, right? And, and I, I guess my sense is that it's it's a broad definition. It encompasses a wide range of activity. We introduced probably a little less than half of the bills that we introduced last year, our office, were bipartisan in the sense of having a, a sponsor, a co-lead that was uh, Republican, right? Um, but there are other ways to, to be bipartisan. Part of it is listening and engaging. Look, the president, President Biden, in my understanding, he's had more you know, meetings at the White House with bipartisan legislatures, inviting Republican and Democratic senators and, and House members to visit with him in the last two months than President Trump certainly had in the last two years. And so I think that is bipartisan, trying to make an effort, trying to uh, to reach consensus and having those conversations and trying to convince and you know cajole and negotiate with your colleagues. That That's what governing is all about. And I think the president has you know, remained true to that promise. In terms of your broader question about why eminently popular policies, uh, you know, that are the American public largely supports have such a hard time gaining uh, bipartisan support in the Congress. There's a lot of potential answers. And uh, without belaboring the point, again, I think it goes back in part to how the districts are drawn and uh, to redistricting and gerrymandering. And the reality that, again, if districts are drawn in a way so that they appeal to a very small ideological pocket, uh, then that that will have consequences in terms of the legislation that's uh, ultimately enacted by the Congress. I want to talk about your background a little bit. You made reference to it. You're the son of immigrants. I'm an immigrant myself and also the son of immigrants. And your, your folks came from Eritrea. I, I just wonder how you think about that when it comes to your policy thinking about immigration. H- how much does your background inform your thinking about immigration in America and in what ways? Very much so. Uh, I suspect in similar ways to you, Preet. Um, look, our country has always been this beacon of hope and uh, a place where, you know, those seeking refuge 
and freedom can come and, and, and live their dreams. And, and I, you know, I, it's interesting. I watched Judge Garland's uh, testimony, uh, Attorney General designate Garland, I should say, before the Senate, as I'm sure you did. And I was so moved uh, by his, uh, you know, recounting of, of his family's journey to this country. And I, as I, you know, said to someone else, you know, his, as he described his experience, I think he was speaking for every immigrant, son of immigrants, or daughter of immigrants, or granddaughter or grandson of immigrants, um, who feels the same way, that we've all been given the gift of American democracy, this incredible, you know, the, the freedoms and the opportunities that we have in this country that just don't exist in a whole lot of places in the world. And we feel a real debt to pay it back and to pay it forward. And that's why many of us choose public service. It's certainly why I did. Um, and obviously, it impacts, uh, you know, my views on immigration policy in a very visceral way as we think about, for example, raw refugee policies and the ways in which those were deeply undermined by the prior administration, the refugee cap being literally slashed by three-fourths, uh, lowest admission of refugees in, in the modern era of our country, uh, obviously the, the terrible abuses that happened on our southern borders. So uh, we could devote probably a, a, certainly an entire hour could do an whole episode. to immigration policy, but, it, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's the reason why I serve on the immigration subcommittee in the House Judiciary Committee, because I'm, I'm passionate about it. My constituents are passionate about it. My state is passionate about it, but I am too, uh, for, uh, for obvious reasons. In reading about what you've said about your family, I see a lot of the things that I say about my own family, and that is the emphasis on education, the emphasis on doing well in school, a particular emphasis on going to college and getting a good degree. And that's sort of you know, imprinted on the brain of a lot of people, but particularly immigrants who come to the United States. And I've always thought of that as a great virtue and a wonderful thing and a good thing to focus on. And it is one of the reasons why I got to where I got. And you got to where you got. But recently, I've been thinking more and, and reading more about some you know, possible downsides to the huge emphasis on college, because two-thirds of Americans don't go to college. Do you worry that in political discussion and in the making of policy, we leave behind a little bit the people who are not going to go to college by overemphasizing the importance of university? I think that's a legitimate worry, a legitimate concern. But I have to say, I think it's somewhat mitigated now by virtue of the president that we just elected <laughs> because President Biden, I mean, has made, you know, kind of workforce training, apprenticeship uh, program investment, a pillar of his education policy. And I think you're going to find a department of education under uh, the new secretary that is very committed to this work. I, when I was in uh, state government, I served for a few years running our state's consumer protection agency and served in the cabinet of Governor Hickenlooper, uh, who's now, of course, Senator Hickenlooper. And it was a big priority of his when he was governor of trying to look at the way other countries have developed really successful apprenticeship programs, uh, uh, places like Switzerland and elsewhere, uh, and emulating those programs here. Because as you said, not everybody goes to college. And uh, we, ought to, we ought to have a system in place that ensures everybody can achieve their dreams on the particular path that they choose. And not every one of those paths is going to be one that includes a four-year or a graduate degree. Congressman Joe Neguse, thank you for making the time and thank you for your service. It was a real, real treat. Thank you, Preet. It's my pleasure. My conversation with Congressman Joe Neguse continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end the show this week by telling you about something that I did this weekend. As some of you may have seen on the internets, this past Sunday evening, February 28th, I received my first shot of coronavirus vaccine. I got the first shot of Pfizer, 
That means I'll get the second shot in three weeks. I got my shot at the Jacob Javits Convention Center on the west side of Manhattan. And it was a little bit of a bizarre thing to be there. The last most memorable thing I did at the Jacob Javits Center was take the bar exam. I think 27 or 28 years ago. Maybe some of you have been to the Jacob Javits Center and gotten a shot or will get a shot there. I think they're doing hundreds, if not thousands per day. They're about to go overnight as well so that more shots can be administered to more people in the New York area. The entire experience from beginning to end was seamless. You arrive and you're greeted by a National Guard soldier or airman. And throughout the process, as you move from station to station and you have your ID checked and you get ready to get your shot, it's run by the National Guard beautifully. And there's this moment when you get to sort of the end and you're about to enter the cavernous room where there are scores and scores of tables set up with practitioners who are going to inject your arm with the vaccine. And you're waiting in a number of lines and there are National Guard members sort of directing you to which table. You keep hearing the phrase again and again and again, ma'am, follow that soldier. Sir, follow that soldier. And then when the time came for me, I followed a particular soldier and I was never happier to do so. The shot itself is completely painless, takes about three seconds, and then you sit for 15 minutes to make sure you don't have a reaction, an allergic reaction, there's free water, and then you're on your way. So some people have asked me, because I posted this fact on Twitter, some people reacted saying, Preet, I didn't know you were so old. How'd you get a shot so soon? Well, there are different conditions and qualifying factors in different states. In New York, if you have a qualifying underlying condition, Beginning back, I think, on February 15th, you were eligible for a shot if you could find one online. And my wife spent some time and aided me in that process, and I have her to thank, for finding this Jacob Javits vaccination appointment. And so I do have a qualifying underlying condition, which I'm not going to share with you. One reason I wanted to share the good news of my own shot was to show other people that the shot is safe, the shot is effective, and everyone should be doing everything they can to get one. Why is that important? Well, it's important because, as you may have been reading, there are a lot of Americans who are vaccine hesitant, who plan not to take it. There's a poll I saw in the last few days that says 56% of white Republicans say they are unsure or will not take the COVID vaccine. Why do I mention that? I mention it because one of the last shameful acts that Donald Trump committed in the final days of his presidency was to get the coronavirus vaccine. Nothing shameful in getting the vaccine, but he did it quietly. He did it secretly, along with his wife, Melania Trump. And we just learned about it now, weeks after the end of his presidency. How much of a difference could he have made to many of those Republicans who are unsure of taking the vaccine or flatly say they will not take the vaccine? The more people know, the more people hear that folks are taking the vaccine and welcoming the vaccine, the better. And I don't know, folks, if this has been your experience, if you've gotten a shot, but I had a hard time being happy even while I was in line at the Javits Center. I kept thinking maybe there's a screw up with my appointment. Maybe there's a mistake. Maybe I don't really have one. Maybe they'll ask me some question that prevents me from getting the vaccination. Then after I got the shot in my arm and the bandaid was placed on my arm and I was walking to the place where you sit for 15 minutes, I was really overcome with happiness and relief, much more than I had expected. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's kind of like this moment after a year of being fearful for your family, for your friends, for your country, and one little small shot, less than 12 months after we all locked down last year, it was kind of a miracle. And in that moment, I felt the miracle. By the way, I would have taken a selfie to prove that I'd gotten the vaccine, but for whatever reason, in the Jacob Javits Center, photography is not permitted in the vaccination room. And finally, I just want to thank, as we all should, 
everyone who made not only the vaccine, but the vaccinations possible. The doctors, the scientists, the nurses, the logistical people, and the National Guard. Every soldier I ran into in that process on Sunday was cheerful, helpful, and doing a very profoundly important public service. And it continues to be my view that anytime anyone anywhere gets a shot in the arm, it's a beautiful thing. I hope you're in the process of getting your own shots. I hope it won't be too long if you haven't gotten one yet. And share your stories about getting a vaccination. I'd like to hear them. Send them to letters at cafe.com. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Congressman Joe Nagus. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.